The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Good morning. I have been excited about this particular lectureship for several years. Brother Austin Fowler, who is a homeboy to you all partly, um, he invited me to be here several years ago, and I was thrilled when he did that. And then when Barry reached out several months ago and in turn added the topics to this series, particularly the ones I had been assigned that he just mentioned, I was really thrilled about that. I agree, they're very appropriate, they're very timely. They're very timeless in that manner. You always, these things need to be preached, and I'm thankful to be a part of the lectureship to be able uh, to do that. I will admit uh, that when I was invited to be here about two or three years ago to be a part of this, I assumed, just assumed wrongly, but I would assume that I was kind of the closer of this event. At home, we have a lectureship series that goes Friday night, Saturday night, and concludes on Sunday. And I'm kind of more used to that, more comfortable with that. And then I get the flyer that officially came out, and I wasn't the closer, I was the opener. So the way you need to look at that is instead of me raising the bar so high, it'll probably be so low that everybody else will look great. So just be prepared for that. But we're going to do the best we can. The scriptures are going to speak to us, I promise you that. And that's what we'll be using. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you don't mind, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. When you get there, uh, I'll say this as well. Austin Fowler has been a tremendous encouragement to me through the years, and he is a, a man who is all about traveling, and he oftentimes carries me around the country when I'm doing gospel meetings. Uh, his own terms, he called himself the last time we were in Indiana, he was my Uber driver. That's been kind of updated the last decade or so as we've been traveling. Uh, but usually when I'm with him and I'm going to be preaching, he'll say, can you preach blank? And he'll leave a blank. You know, he won't leave a blank. He'll fill that one in. And he's given me a number of ideas and topics and sermons and things that I've preached through the years. And he's very often said to me as we're driving, can you please preach Nehemiah 8? Well, I'm not going to preach that Nehemiah 8 sermon, but we are in Nehemiah 8. So we'll be using that text in just a moment. Brother Barry mentioned I was in the Memphis School of Preaching at his feed as well, uh, but back in October, I know the dates and times of some of this, but back in October of 2004, I was seated at the feet of Brother Keith Mosier. He was our instructor, was teaching to us the books of First and Second Corinthians at the time. And Brother Mosier, if you're familiar with him, is a wonderful expositor. He does an excellent job of digging deeply in the Scripture, and I and others often appreciated that about him. But one of the things that you got when you got him, and this was very much the case of Brother Garland and Elkins as well, sometimes they were old enough that they would just pause. And they would give you a snippet of experience or wisdom from their life. And when those things came about, even though you're already taking notes, you kind of made a special place for whatever they were about to say. And he paused during the course of that class, First and Second Corinthians, one day. And he said, brethren, I need you to know something. I need you to listen closely. He said, when you get out there to preach, when you get out there behind pulpits all over the country, wherever you may land, when you are there, he said, never underestimate the ignorance of your audience. Never underestimate the ignorance of your audience. And I'll admit, when he said that, I was somewhat offended. 
For one, I was offended for my brethren. I was not only a proclaimer of truth, or a defender of truth, but I thought a defender of the brethren. And number two, I was seated at his feet. So we were a part of that audience. And I didn't understand that. I thought that was a little bit rude or crude. I, I didn't think that was a good statement to make. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe this old man, that's what I thought of him as. I said, maybe this old man has just had a bad experience. Maybe he's had a rough road. And I knew he hadn't been in a pulpit in over 10 years locally. He'd been teaching there at the school at least that long. So maybe over the course of time, he has forgotten what the brethren are like. And I thought about the brethren I was preaching to on a weekly basis already, even, even while I was during school there. And I thought, you know, the brethren I preach to, they're, they're very intelligent. They're, they're Bible students, and they understand the Bible. So I don't know where he's coming from with this statement. Never underestimate the ignorance of your audience. And I left there that day somewhat offended, and I did exactly what any a young, dumb Bible student would do. I, I didn't say a word to Brother Mosher because I was afraid. I was scared of him. But, but I didn't like the idea. Fast forward. Two years nearly to the day, I was standing in a pulpit in Philadelphia, Mississippi, my first official quote-unquote local work. I'd been there about five months. I was standing in a pulpit there, and I'd been preaching through a series of lessons that I had entitled, probably borrowed from someone else, entitled, What We Believe and Why. And during that series of lessons, there were about 10 or 12 of those, we covered various subjects. We covered things like modesty. We covered things like dancing, social drinking. We covered the faith-only doctrines. We covered the typical tulip or Calvinism. We covered subjects like the essentiality of baptism and, and things like that. There were a number of those. But I was closing that series one night, right toward the end at least, if not the lesson, the last, but nearly the last lesson, and I preached there that night, Sunday afternoon, what we believe and why concerning the body, the church. I felt like after I preached that and the things that were included were just the fact that there is only one body, one church. I felt like that after I preached that and I was, did a relatively decent job of communicating that, I put a strong emphasis right on the end of the sermon to make sure that I knew that People understood that the body and the church was the place in which all the saved people were added and that that was a place in which we must worship in order to worship God in truth. We must be a part of the body and participating in such and kind of got through all that. We left the building that night. We just happened to have a church fellowship down at some of the members' homes. They had a beautiful 100-acre farm, brand-new house, brand-new everything, and we went down there for a church fellowship, about 60 of us, we're able to get over to that, so two-thirds or so of the congregation. And while I was there, the hostess of the house, I'll call her Jamie. She said, Jim, I need to talk to you for a minute. So I walked over there. She was in the kitchen by herself. Everyone else was in different areas of the property. And, and she pulled me over to the side, and she said, uh, I've been a Christian longer than you have been alive. And she pointed at me. When she did that, I kind of swallowed hard because you don't know where this is going. But she said, I've been a Christian longer than you have been alive. I was 35 years old. And she said, I have never understood the one body or the one church. She said, I never understood that that was the only church that really, really should be worshiping in. I never understood that that's the church that 
God adds us to when we are baptized. She said, but I want to thank you for that. You taught me some things tonight I had no idea about that I did not understand, and, and I'm glad that you've been doing this series overall. I'm certainly glad that you taught this lesson tonight because this one here impacted me, and now I know, and now I understand. I didn't put it in my calendar, but if I were to go back and try to figure things out and put a label on that calendar date, that would be the day my hat size went up. That would be the day my suspenders popped because I was, you know, swollen with pride, I know, as I walked out of that kitchen and went on through the, after, through the night and through the evening with the brethren there. And I kept thinking to myself, you know what, I, I really did do a pretty good job with that. I, I did cover that very well, and, and I'm so excited that she now understands what a wonderful story this will be. And I'll tell this for, for years to come about how you can teach the first principles and how you can get to the Bible and how people will learn and understand it. And that's all true. But I got home that evening. I got ready for bed and I got in the bed and laid there and my eyes wouldn't close because I realized something. Based on the statement she made, I've been a Christian longer than you have been alive. That meant for 35 years she had been a Christian and not even understood the body of Christ. I knew that she had grown up as a child even in that congregation that had been in existence for more than 60 years who, I don't know that this is a good ratio or whatever statistic, but had had, I was the 14th preacher in 60 years to preach at that location. She had heard that. She had obeyed the gospel some 35 plus years ago. And she did not understand the first basic things of Scripture that we understand and must know to be a child of God, honestly that there's but one body and one church. And as I continued to lay there that night, my pride turned to tears, my joy failed away, and I finally brought those words from the back of my mind I hadn't considered in years of Brother Mosier. Never underestimate the ignorance of your audience. And now I understood Talked with him later to confirm this, but he didn't mean that in a derogatory way. Yes, he was a grouchy old man. <laughs> but he didn't mean that in a derogatory way. What he meant to say was, when you go out and when you preach the gospel, and when you stand before groups of people, your brethren, to preach the gospel, never underestimate their ignorance. Always assume that there are some things there that you know that they may not know. Always assume that there is a time of study that you take every day in your life, that you emphasize your life and balance your life around, and there may be a time in their life when that's non-existent. They may not be a student of the Bible as you are. They may not study certain things as you do, and they may not understand. That's all ignorance is, the lack of understanding. What does that tell me? In times like these, we need the Bible. We've got to get back in this book 
as a people and as individuals. So if you're there in Nehemiah 8, and I guess you have been for 25 minutes and 38 seconds, but if you're there in Nehemiah chapter 8, begin reading with me there in verse 1. That's where we're picking up here. Now keep in mind the context of Nehemiah. Uh, This is a book, the entire book really is a book of restoration, a book of revival. As a matter of fact, you read the preceding uh, parallel book to this in Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah go together at one point. They were not even separate. But Ezra, they talked really about the restoration of the temple. The temple of God had been rebuilt and they were excited. They were happy and thrilled about that, pleased. You come into Nehemiah, by the time you get down to chapter 6 and 7 that precede this, they had actually done something nearly impossible to do, and that is the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down completely flat. And they had been tasked to rebuild those walls, and they had done that. This is mind-boggling. They'd rebuilt the walls around the entire city of Jerusalem in 52 days. I couldn't put a fence around my property of a half an acre in that time. But in 52 days, they had rebuilt those walls. And so if they were standing there thinking as I would have, calling them the congregation of Israel, that's what God referred to them as much as the children of Israel, or we might say the Israelite nation or whatever, as the congregation, they might have stood back and said to themselves, you know what, we've accomplished so much. We have revived the temple. We have revived and revitalized the walls, and we've been successful and and all. But by the time you get to chapter 8, Nehemiah has noticed something. And that is for all the wonderful things, I would call them the programs, the accomplishments they've achieved, they've not yet got back to the book. So chapter 8 and verse 1 reading, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord God had commanded to Israel. Kind of highlight that in your minds. Verse 2. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both men and women and all the people that could hear and understand. And it was upon the first day and the seventh month. Now, if you would like to do some background study, you can go back to Leviticus 23. You can go back to different passages in Deuteronomy. You can find out what the first day and the seventh month meant. It was a tremendous uh, point in time in the life of Israel. It should have been a time of of excitement, of of worship, of wonderful things. But at this time, it hadn't gotten there yet. Verse 3, And he, that is Ezra, read therein before the street, which was before the water gate, from morning until midday. Highlight that in your minds. And before men and women, and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of law. Verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood upon the pulpit which he had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and if anybody would like to just volunteer, read the next 13 names, but I'm going to pass over. These 13 men were there. They were speaking. They were participants and such. And verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And he opened it, and all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. And lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, 
and worship their Lord with their faces to the ground. Just put a, put a pen down there, verses 1 to 6. What was needed in order for these people, the congregation of Israel, the children of Israel, to get back to the Bible? What was needed? To bring the book of the law. So the first thing I see in this text, there are a number that we won't get to, but the first thing I see in this text is a principle, and that is in order to get back to the Bible, we have to have communication with the Bible. You see, I've got to be willing as a Christian to take and open this book between these leather-bound covers, whether or not yours are black and white or mine almost black and yellow pages, and to read and study and examine the book and to examine this book in a way to understand that it is God's choice way of communicating toward us. And that everything I may know or potentially could know about God and about His law and about His will and about His word for us, I'm going to find in this book and in no other place. And the scriptures specifically describe these people. And one thing that stands out in my mind that was for sure is the main thing that came up in the very beginning of this. And it's the fact that they initiated the service. When they determined to have communication with God and Nehemiah grabbed Ezra and said, go get the book of the law, get in here and read it to the people. They had initiated the service. They had asked and said, bring the book of the law. They had said, we want to hear what God says on the subject. Now, the reason that matters, and I'm not knocking this congregation, uh, as of right now, I've been here a total of uh, 30 minutes this morning, about a, an hour, about two or three years ago. That's it. But I travel a lot, and I preach to a lot of brethren. I know the laws of averages. And I would imagine there have not been many times, I pray there have been some, but there have probably not been many times when the elders have been in a meeting or discussing something, and there's been a knock at the door. And they open it up and there's a group of members standing at the door and they're saying to the elders, I tell you what we need to do. We've got Sunday morning Bible class. I enjoy it. We've got Sunday morning worship. I enjoy being able to praise God that way. We meet on Sunday afternoon at some point. We meet on Wednesday for Bible class. But I tell you what I would like to see us doing here. I would love it, elders, if we could now start meeting on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and maybe Friday. Why don't we add a few times when we can gather and study together? That would excite me more than anything. And the eldership's well says, well, you know, we got a fish fry uh, scheduled for Friday night. You're going to be there? Yes, I'm going to be there, but I hope we can have a time of devotion. I just wish we could study the Bible together. I'll assure you, if you do that to your elders... Uh, only do it to them if you do not enjoy uh, their leadership or you do not enjoy them as people because they'll drop dead of a heart attack. But the people right here, they come before Ezra and said, go get the book of the law. Bring it to me. They didn't ask for anything else. They didn't ask for him to bring them a, a note on philosophy. They didn't ask him to bring a note about astrology or ge geography or geometry, which I would definitely have refused. They said, go get the book of the law of Moses. They initiated the service. Also see it this way. It goes on to read, we read across it anyway, 
It says when he brought that, Ezra brought that, verse 2, he brought it before all the congregation. He brought it for both men and women and, quote, all who could understand. He brought it according to verse 3, and get this, he read it from morning until midday. One of the most impactful sermons I heard when I was a child, I was probably six, seven years old, was our local preacher at the time. Uh, he asked the congregation, he happened to be preaching this text. I don't remember much about it, but I remember this. He happened to be preaching this text, so what he determined to do that morning before he would preach it, he said that he wanted to read chapters 6, 7, and 8 together. And he asked the congregation there, young and old and everybody, if you will, stand up as we read the Scripture. You know, some groups do that. Nothing wrong or right about such, but stand up while we read the Scripture. And I can remember even as a child, after he, we listened to him read three chapters, some people had sat down, some people had wandered out into the, to the birds through the windows and different things. These people, it said, were attentive. They have been really involved and invested in this word. And if the scriptures are correct, I know they are, but if the interpretation of the scriptures are correct and the commentators and the, those who know more than I are correct, that could have easily been emphasizing a possibility of them reading it from morning till midday. That could be as much as six hours. Now, if you really want to understand that, you keep reading throughout the rest of the chapter on into the next chapter 9, and you find out they didn't do that that day for six hours. They did that on the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh day. For seven days they gathered and they read the scriptures from morning until midday. And they are spoken of here as being attentive. So important fact right here, in the communication of God's Word, be willing to initiate that service. And that doesn't necessarily refer to a worship service. I'm meaning if you want to know God's Word, then you take the time and you give the time and you take the opportunity to initiate a service with God. You grab your Bible, you open it up, and you read it. That's exactly what they did. Now something else that's interesting about that, not only did they, in that case, initiate the service, I would probably throw a word in there just to say what I just said, they were captivated by it. But we also read here, and we read across it, we went on through a little bit farther, notice in verse 5 what happened, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people. And all the people were there, and he was above all the people, and he opened it... And all the people, again, it says, stood up. And he taught them, verse 6, concerning the Lord our great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen. I notice in here that not only were they, in this case at least, they initiated the service, but two, they respected the Scriptures. The idea of them standing, now this doesn't necessarily universally always represent respect or whatever, or whatever, but even in our society, at least in our father's society and our grandfathers, there were times in their lives when you stood. How many of you are old enough, well don't, don't raise your hand, I can look in your face and know this. How many of you are old enough to remember a time if a woman walked into a room, the men stood up? That, you did. That happened. 
How many of you have ever understood, and I'm not saying that if I've, I've shook a few hands, got around to half the side on the wind, but you know it's a respectful thing, not knocking you, but if I walk up to shake your hand, you know what's really typical? See, she told him what to do. Stand up. <laughs> it's respect. Not respect toward me, just respect toward the situation. Friends, these people stood up. And they stood up. Why? Because the word was being read and they respected that. I'm mindful of the Thessalonians, at least what Paul writes to the Thessalonians, about how at a time they received the word of God. You can find this in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, chapter 2, and verse 13 and 14. When they heard the word of God being read or when they had access to it, they understood it as of the word of God, watch this, and not as the word of men. It's different. And it's because it is different, it requires of us a different level of respect. Now, something that I catch here as a side note, I emphasized it when I was reading a little earlier, but it says he opened the book in the, quote, sight, King James speak, verse 5, in the sight of all the people. Do you know what kind of impact that really has? A great friend of mine for many, many years his name is Harold Davidson. You know Harold Davidson. Some may. Lives in Oban, Tennessee. Preached the gospel for, I guess he's knocking on the door 70 years now. I don't know. He's 40, 50 years my elder anyway. But at one point he made a point to me. I was in the Memphis School of Preaching. Of course, Memphis is about memory work, right? A lot of that. And we need to. We hide the word of God in our hearts. We all should. But he made a point to me. He said, Jim, when you preach, he said, don't just quote Scripture. Let people see a Bible in your hand. That's not a universal truth, but it's a wonderful principle. Let them see that what you are studying with them, that it does actually come off of these pages. And you know, I'm excited. I've, I see so many Bibles in laps around here. Some of you probably have a digital copy on your phone. I'm fine with that. But, but this right here means something. So they respected the scriptures. Number three, not only did they initiate the service, they respected the scriptures, but look at it. They worshiped the Savior in here. Their communication included the worship of the Savior. When he read that, remember their response there? In Ezra, verse 6 again, And Ezra blessed the Lord the great God. He blessed him. The idea there is he gave him praise, actually. He blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Now watch this next part closely. I would uh, mark it. I mark in my Bible, I highlight, I underline. If I box something in, it's extremely, this got a box around it. That's the best, that's the top level for me. Lifting up their hands. Now listen closely. Don't quote me from your notes. I want you to give me a moment. That, at that time... I have every ounce of confidence, was a literal, physical position. They lifted up their hands. You know, you see these worship services, particularly on television a lot. I don't know if you've ever been to one in person, what have you, but there'll be a group of people or probably the entire group, and they've got their hand, maybe they're singing, or sometimes listening to that, which I wouldn't agree with, unbiblical. They got their hands lifted. Now, I don't believe for a skinny minute that we necessarily have to lift our hands in worship to God. I don't believe that. Our position is no longer physical, but emotional. Our position is not a position of hands, but of heart. 
But if in the next hour, we'll say, Maybe there's a visitor from our community or from some other, quote-unquote, loosely speaking, religious group around our community that comes into our auditorium. And if when we stand to sing a song, if for some reason they determine in their minds to raise their hands, do not rebuke them. It will be uncomfortable, yes. You may not feel right about it to do it yourself, absolutely. But do not rebuke them. Why? Because I would rather be worshiping among people who had the emotion about them. Remember, we worship God how? In spirit, spirit, and in truth. Spirit leads truth. I would rather be amongst those people than sometimes some who exist in the cemeteries of the churches or in the buildings we call churches. They worship God. Next phrase or two says, to the point they fell upon their faces. Again, that doesn't have to be physically positional, but it is absolutely positional in the heart. And if you're able to gather before the throne of God to worship Him on the Lord's day, and in your heart at least, you are not raising up spiritual hands. In your heart at least, you are not willing to bow your face to the ground in respect and in awe of Him. Then I'm going to tell you from my mouth and my experience at least, you've not quite gotten there. It required communication. You want to show me the clock when it's time? I, don't, I thought you said five, six seconds. I thought he was saying, S I heard this. You got a lisp, or I just confused. <laughs> Required communication, number two. Not only does it require communication, I would say about it this as well. It did require also, or they needed clarification. See? What happens in the priest in the next verses that come after that one? I've got a page over, but what happens there after it says those things about them lifting up their hands, putting their face to the ground? Then it says in verse 7, there are a number of names again. You're welcome to read on your own time. Them along with the Levites, I'm in 7c, the end of the verse, cause the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place, and so they read the book in the law of God, here's the key word again, distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. What does that mean? They had, in this case, as I'm using the words, they had communication. They were hearing God's word. It was entering into their ears. Uh, all the things that are inside were uh, banging about, doing as they should. But they had to, at one point, have it to be clarified. I'm 100% on board with all of us who may join together around January and determine to read our Bibles through in a year. Anyone ever participated in that? You set a goal, you may read the whole Bible once, you may read the Old Testament once, and the New Testament twice. I've got 30-day, 90-day programs, all this, and depending on the amount of time that you're willing to give back to God for that, you'll do that. But it's most important, most important, that we do not simply read it but that we realize it. 
allow it to be clarified in our mind. And see what these men did in, in association with what Ezra had read, these men along with the Levites came in and they quote, help the people, I'm back in, uh, what was it, verse 8, 7, the latter, to understand. They helped the people as they read the Word of God. They read it distinctly, and then they, quote, gave it the sense so that they could do what, quote, to understand that reading. A good gospel preacher, a good teacher, and by the way, you can preach without teaching. I mean, sorry, you can. I mean, don't even try to say that. I just got it all backwards. You can teach and not preach, but you can't preach without teaching. There, I got it. A good person who would lead a service as far as teaching and or preaching. And then don't stop there. A person, put yourself in the mirror at your home, reading your Bible. A person who does that will follow a pattern similar to this. Meaning they will read it. You will read it. It will be read. Scriptures will be at the forefront. The word will be in front of their sight. But after that initial reading in this case is done, it is not all that is done. Here's my pattern. Everyone is different. I like to analyze. I then in turn like to organize. Then I like to go from that place and to illustrate and to apply. Many other ways of seeing that. You can have revelation, the reading. You can have realization, the understanding. And you can have reception, the action that goes forward to prove that you've done it. It's so important that we take the time as Bible students. And then, by the way, in order to keep the term Bible students attached to your forehead, you've got to do this. But it is so important that when we get back to the book, that we don't just get back to the book on our coffee tables or back to the book in our back seats or back to the book. I don't think you do this, but I didn't get here early enough to prove anybody. Uh, laid on the church pew. I mentioned Philadelphia, Mississippi earlier and the, the issue the, the young lady had. I'm not sure why that is, but I've got a clue. My first Monday there, I realized most people had left their Bibles in the building. I asked about some of those, and most of them said, well, I got tons of Bibles. I got Bibles at home. Well, I, yeah, that's true. But I tell you what, the Bibles I love to study, they don't leave my side. I take notes. I examine. You've got to get in the book. It has, in that case, to be to a place where it is not only communicated, but get to a place where it is in addition to that and what that is, clarified. Now, last one here. We've got negative a minute. The third one, not only communication and clarification, but there has to be conviction. This right here in the scripture, we hadn't even read far enough for it, don't have the time to do it, so I trust you as a Bible student, you will. But if you read on from verse 8 to 9 to 10 to 11 and so forth, you get to a place where you see that them hearing and understanding, by the way, the word understanding comes up here a number of times in the text. The phrase all the people comes up more than you can imagine in the text. 
but after them understanding the word in the previous verses here, verse 7, 8, 9, it says about them, verse 9, and Nehemiah, which was a Tishba, a governor, and Ezra, which was a priest and a scribe, and the Levites taught all the people. And all the people said, This day is holy to our Lord God. Mourn not nor weep. Watch this. For the people had wept. If the Bible is changing the heart of anyone, a non-Christian or, there will be possibly times in our lives when we will find sorrow. You say, wait a minute. We ought to be finding joy and hope. Yes. What would the psalmist say? That comes to a broken and contrite heart. There's sometimes there's going to be sorrow. You drop down the page in this just a bit farther. Not only is there sorrow, but they have satisfaction in it. Verse 10. You get to the culminating thing here in verse 12. Listen to this. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make a great mirth. That's King James speak, for they were overjoyed because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You go down in verse 14 through the rest of the chapter, they had submission. What does that mean? They did what the word had said. Do your research. They had not participated in a number of things that God had commanded in a while. One of them was the feast that was supposed to begin and take place on the first day of the seventh month. That's why that mattered. Called, referred to as the Feast of Booths. Strange time. Go out in a tent and build you a teepee and sit in it and, and study God's Word. That's about what it was about. The Bible says they had not participated in that since the days of Joshua. Do your math. A thousand years. A thousand years they had not been fully obedient to God. But now they heard it. Now they understood it. And now they were convicted by it. Thank you for your attention and for your time.